and welcome to another ABI podcast. I'm Amy Quackenboss, the Deputy Executive Director of the American Bankruptcy Institute, and today I'm joined by Craig Martin. Craig is a partner with DLA Piper in Wilmington, Delaware, and has represented numerous parties in a variety of cases, but his work frequently focuses on cross-border situations. He has acted as counsel in cases in Canada, Germany, Ireland, Hong Kong, Spain, Bermuda, the Dominican Republic, Africa, the UK, and Argentina. Mr. Martin is an ABI member and chairs Insol International's Younger Members Committee and the Delaware Veterans Law Committee. He received his BA from Texas Christian University, his Master's of Science from the University of Edinburgh, and his JD Cum Laude from the University of Houston Law Center. We're here today because Craig has co-authored a book with Cullen Drescher Speckhart entitled Chapter 15 for Foreign Debtors, which is currently in the ABI bookstore. So welcome, Craig. Thanks for joining us today. Can you tell us a little bit about why you wrote this book? Sure, Amy. Thank you for that nice introduction. Um, I appreciate you uh, having me here today. I wrote this book because I became interested in cross-border insolvency uh, in the mid-1990s when the United Nations Commission for International Trade Law, or UNCITRAL, was working on a model law um, for cross-border recognition proceedings. That model law ultimately became uh, Chapter 15. Um, I was interested in international uh, law and, and bankruptcy law and had done an internship for Judge Wesley Steen, a former ABI uh, president, and he had been asked to testify before Congress on the uh, amendments that were being proposed, which ultimately were enacted in 2005, and he asked me to help brief him on Chapter 15. Um, that was in the, the mid-1990s. I've been following Chapter 15 ever since, it, it, and when it was enacted, I've kept up with it and now that we're 10 years on from it being enacted, it seemed like a timely uh, time to pause and reflect on what the model law had achieved in Chapter 15 in the U.S. And so who would be the intended audience? I think, I think obviously, the book was written from a generalized standpoint, mostly focusing on informing potential foreign representatives and their foreign counsel on some of the concepts and principles uh, so that they could have a desk reference to look at as they're thinking about coming into the United States, but also uh, for U.S. counsel uh, dealing with these issues, because a lot of the Chapter 15 cases, like many bankruptcy cases, happen in real time, and they're, they're unpublished uh, decisions, they're bench rulings. Uh, and in the book, we cover not only the decisions that were that are published and in the reporters, but we also go into some of the transcripts uh, of some of the important cases to look at how the courts are dealing with discovery and other issues that have arisen in Chapter 15, but that perhaps haven't been published and gotten the wide headlines. Um, And we think that that is a useful resource for uh, both U.S. counsel and counsel outside the U.S. to deal with these issues. And, and so you ha- you've dealt a lot with Chapter 15 or, or the model law before um, and, of course, a- after it was enacted. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the background? And I know you address this in your book, but why was Chapter 15 enacted in 2005? It was really, it was, the United States had in the 1978 Bankruptcy Code, Section 304, which um, was a version that permitted recognition of foreign insolvency proceedings. Many other countries, however, didn't have anything like that. And as globalization advanced, I think there was a general recognition uh, outside the United States that there might be a need for some form of harmonizing law. Obviously, getting a treaty or some other 
document that everybody can agree to is quite difficult. Um, so the United Nations decided through its UNCITRAL group to uh, put together a model law that could then be adopted by various countries in hopes that there would be some uniform uh, procedural guidelines. And it was really out of that initiative that the model law arose and was enacted. The, the United States is one of the major economies in the global marketplace, um, enacted it in 2005, I think, not only to help modernize Section 304, but to also act as a bit of a leader in encouraging other countries to adopt the law. And I think now uh, almost 25 or 30 com- countries have adopted some version of the model law, um, and so it's, begin- it's, it's helped harmonize um, global restructurings uh, in not only corporate but in individual cases as our world has shrunk from technology and better understanding of one another's cultures. And can can you tell us a little bit or tell our listeners a little bit more about um, the role of the foreign representative under the model law or under um, Chapter 15? What are his or her duties in the case? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question because the foreign representative is generally a person appointed by another court in another country that has uh, duties and obligations under foreign law. Uh, So the foreign representative is allowed to have the foreign case recognized, and and the first duty is to file the proper paperwork with the U.S. Bankruptcy Court to have that recognition occur. Once uh, recognition occurs, then the foreign representative um, is really still charged with doing what it's obligated to do under the foreign law. But the Chapter 15 case gives a forum for that foreign representative to uh, receive the aid and assistance of the U.S. court system to recover any property that might belong to the foreign bankruptcy case, but that is located in the United States. The question of what are their duties within the Chapter 15 case is a bit uh, a bit complicated because their duties really arise out of their foreign law, and then the U.S. courts are to recognize that. And sometimes the courts struggle with that because what what might be a duty of a liquidator or a trustee in a foreign proceeding may not necessarily match with a U.S. lawyer's or judge's understanding of what a Chapter 7 trustee should do, what a debtor in possession should do. So in each case, it's different what the foreign representative's duties are. Potentially, yes. To the extent there is an issue over what the foreign representative must do or should do, you know, that certainly could be subject to debate. You know, one case that we talk about in the book, um, the Commanda case out of Germany, uh, a foreign representative sought to reject um, patent licenses, which he argued was permissible under German law, but the uh, licensees of those patents argued that they were not permissible that would not have been permissible under Section 365N, the the provision of the bankruptcy code that protects um, licensors of debtor property. And so the the courts in the Eastern District of Virginia and up to the Fourth Circuit had to struggle with whether 365N should apply in the Chapter 15 case or whether they should defer to German law's uh, standard on that. Um, and that was uh, vigorously debated in the court and went up and down. Um, and ultimately resulted in a ruling uh, that um, provided 365N protection, and we discussed that that in the book at length. 
it sounds like one of the challenges is to really kind of lay out what his or her duties are, understand what his or her duties are, and, you know, and deal with competing foreign laws versus U.S. bankruptcy laws. What are some of the other pitfalls or challenges a um, foreign representative might run into? The, I think the two issues that have been coming up of late are really litigation-related, one being is the foreign representative subject to uh, suit in the United States? Can creditors sue the foreign representative? Um, does the automatic stay prevent that? What, what if the creditor goes against the foreign representative directly and in a personal capacity? Um, we talk some in the book about uh, immunity principles in Chapter 15. Um, in, in Chapter 1510, we talk about something called the Barton Doctrine, which is a ancient Supreme Court doctrine that protects trustees from suit on a personal level without permission of the bankruptcy court. Whether that applies in Chapter 15, um, we talk about uh, whether a Chapter 15 representative can then pursue litigation against U.S. creditors um, under foreign law avoidance actions, or uh, whether they have to file the equivalent of a Chapter 11 to pursue that litigation. The Chapter 15 uh, has a specific provision that prohibits um, the use of, of avoidance actions, you know, the preference actions, the fraudulent transfer actions that Chapter 7 trustees usually bring, but they do provide that um, the, the foreign representative can file its own case, uh, kind of a modified Chapter 11, to uh, pursue fraudulent transfer and preference actions. In the book, we talk a little bit about the history of, of those types of actions, and uh, we examine a situation in the Southern District of New York where a foreign representative of AWOL Bank uh, filed a Chapter 11 case to pursue a fraudulent transfer action. So they, fi- they file a full-blown Chapter 11 case just to pursue avoidance action. So then they initiate right away uh, litigation in the case. Is that how that works? It, it's Yes, that's how it works. It's not really a full-blown case because Chapter 15 says that it's a somewhat limited version of Chapter 11. Um, with only one case having been filed thus far in the 10 years we've had Chapter 15, there's probably still um, quite a bit of work that needs to be done to flesh that out. Uh, but the statute essentially provides that the Chapter 11 is limited to the assets of the debtor that are within the jurisdiction um, of the bankruptcy court. So in, in the United States, um, and to the extent that those assets are not subject to the jurisdiction and control of another foreign court. So whereas in Chapter 11, when you file, when you file just a, a Chapter 11 in the U.S., not connected to a foreign case, 541 says that your estate consists of all of your assets, you know, wherever located anywhere in the world. Chapter 1528 says that when a foreign representative files a Chapter 11, it's slightly modified and can only include those assets in the U.S. that are not otherwise subject to jurisdiction of foreign courts. So um, it's, it's That's inter- modified That's version that uh, hasn't fully been fleshed out by the courts, and we, we talk about the, the stated example um, and present the concepts uh, in the book in a little bit more detail. So tell us a little bit more about how Chapter 15 does differ from Chapter 11. Um, it, you know, you mentioned the avoidance actions and, and being limited to recovering assets here in the United States, but what about the automatic stay? How does that apply in a Chapter 15? Well, the automatic stay um, applies uh, 
in the context of a what's called a main proceeding, and that that is uh, where the foreign proceeding that is being recognized by the U.S. court is located in the in the place where the country ha- where the debtor has its center of main interest. Um, and if that's the case, Section 1520 of the Bankruptcy Code provides that the automatic stay uh, applies immediately upon recognition of a foreign main proceeding. If you have a foreign non-main proceeding, meaning that your bankruptcy court is recognizing a uh, insolvency proceeding in a foreign country where the debtor is not uh, located, doesn't have its center of main interest, the automatic stay does not apply, and there's a separate section of the bankruptcy code in, in Chapter 15 that permits the foreign representative to seek uh, some form of stay um, over its asset. But that is a discretionary stay that the court has to grant uh, after considering whether the creditors that will be subject to that injunction, in essence, are being sufficiently protected. So the Chapter 15, in some circumstances, simply says 362 automatic stay provisions apply. Um, in other, other situations, you have to ask the bankruptcy court to grant you uh, a version of the automatic stay um, based on the court's discretion. And you go through the, in the book the factors that the court looks at in granting an automatic stay where it's a non, what do you, what do you call it, a non-core non-main. proceeding? It's not a non, yeah. Non-main yeah. proceeding, right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, okay. we do. We talk. We have a whole chapter on um, the automatic stay, and it, it's called entrustment of property and additional relief. I think it's uh, uh, we have a chapter called relief available upon recognition that goes through both both of the items that we've just discussed. You mentioned COMI, the center of main interest, right? Is that what that stands for? Yes. And why is that important? I mean, you talked a little bit about why it's important because the, the, of the automatic stay. Is that the only reason why it's important? or, or And, and what, um, what does a court look at when it's trying to determine whether Comey is, applies? Yeah, so this is, uh, you know, the center of main interest is a concept that arose in the, in the European Union when they were trying to harmonize their insolvency laws. And the idea is that if you don't have some basis to determine which court among many should have main control over the um, over a, over a bankruptcy case. You could have courts issuing um, competing orders, and so the center of main interest is essentially a jurisdictional provision which recognizes a single place where the debtor has its primary operations, um, and then uh, seeks to, in essence, create a, a legal principle that allowed the court presiding over the. Um, main proceeding with uh, the initial ability to decide issues in that insolvency case. So when you're recognizing a foreign main proceeding versus a non-foreign main proceeding, the idea is is that the U.S. courts would potentially give different relief to protect a liquidator of the main case. So if you have a company that's, you know, headquartered, has all of its assets in, its board meetings, its books and records, all in a single country, um, but they have assets in another country, um, you could potentially have two insolvency proceedings in foreign locations, one where the Comey is located and one where a secondary liquidator is liquidating just a minor part of the debtor's assets. And so the idea behind the center of main interest is that the liquidator in the 
um, non-Maine country would perhaps be entitled to lesser relief because the liquidator in the Maine country um, is going to be really running the Maine insolvency case. And so the law uh, has created this mechanism so that the courts in the U.S. can make sure they're giving uh, fair and efficient relief uh, between the parties. So in the book, we talk about um, when when you seek recognition, um, how you establish Comey. We look, you know, the the factors are some of the ones I've mentioned. You know, where is the debtor located? Um, there's a presumption that uh, the center of main interest is where the company is registered or incorporated. Um, that can be rebutted, and there's case law that we discuss in the book where courts say that even if it's not objected to by a creditor, the court has an independent duty to look at evidence to determine the center of main interest. And, you know, they generally look at <clears throat> where the headquarters are, who manages the debtor, where board meetings are held, where are their primary assets, where are all of their creditors based, you know, what what law governs contract disputes between the debtor and its creditors. So then the bankruptcy court makes that determination, and that then funnels into Chapter 15 so that relief uh, can be granted. And interestingly, I think in the book we have a, we have a chapter that talks about um, some little-used sections of Chapter 15 to date. Our, our last chapter, Chapter 8, deals with cooperation, communication, and concurrent proceedings. Um, and the last subchapter of Chapter 15, which is Chapter 1525 through 15. Uh, 32, um, hasn't really been used a lot and discussed in the case law. We talk about those provisions, and those provisions deal with multiple uh, foreign insolvency proceedings. So the example I gave, where you have, you know, a main proceeding in one country and a non-main proceeding in another country, you know, what are the rules that govern what the U.S. courts should do? Um, And we talk about those statutes and how the court's supposed to try to determine that the relief afforded in these cases is respectful of all of the foreign insolvency laws. So it can get quite complicated, and Chapter 15 has some provisions to try to address those complications. To date, none have arisen, but we we do talk about them in the book um, to provide some guidance if people find themselves in a situation where there are multiple foreign proceedings that they're struggling with. That's great and, and very helpful. Uh, we've we've touched on some of the aspects of a Chapter 15 case with the foreign representative and um, seeking recognition, but can you walk us through just uh, and generally a Chapter 15, a typical Chapter 15 case? Yes, um, very straightforward. You file a petition just like you would in a, a Chapter 7 or a Chapter 11. The uh, petition is the form that Congress has included in its bankruptcy forms, and instead of Chapter checking Chapter 7 or 11, you check the box for Chapter 15, and you file that petition. And there's some other forms that have to be filed. Typically, the foreign representative will uh, submit also a more formal verified petition that contains, um, it almost looks like a complaint, causes, uh, you know, the factual background, the causes of the insolvency, um, the filing of the case uh, in the foreign jurisdiction, the background behind that, you know, identifying the court that is presiding over the foreign proceeding. And then the Chapter 15 provides that if you file that petition and you include certified copies of uh, the decision commencing the foreign proceeding and appointing the foreign representative um, and uh, the uh, proper 
paperwork is filed, then the bankruptcy court is obligated to recognize it. I think the um, the language is that it shall be recognized. Um, and so the idea behind Chapter 15 was to take out some of the subjective determinations of whether cases should be recognized and to take out the uh, a long-standing concept in international judgment recognition law of reciprocity where we would say, well, we'll only recognize foreign proceedings from countries that recognize our Chapter 11 and Chapter 7 cases. So that reciprocity requirement was taken out of Chapter 15, and if you file the proper paperwork, the case is recognized. Uh, typically, you have a um, an initial hearing in front of the court, much like a first-day hearing in a Chapter 11 case, uh, especially if you're trying to stay litigation or foreclosure on assets. You're allowed to... Um, seek provisional relief, it's called, which is similar to getting a temporary restraining order, staying all actions against any of the assets of the foreign debtor in the United States. Um, and then after that provisional relief is granted, generally the courts apply a, an injunctive standard to that determination. You then usually have a formal and final recognition hearing uh, 20 days, 25 days, 30 days later, uh, for entry of the order recognizing the case. Uh, once the case is then recognized, then the foreign representative has the power to seek additional relief, additional assistance from the U.S. courts, commence litigation, uh, begin negotiating with perhaps subsidiary companies in which they have investments for winding out of those investments or selling them. Um, and they can t take many of the steps that would look like a normal Chapter 11 case. They can have 363 sales of assets. They can um, seek to uh, address issues that would arise um, so that they can liquidate assets and take them back to uh, their foreign jurisdiction for distribution to creditors. Great. And how does the concept of comedy uh, um, apply to Chapter 15? So we actually have in the book... Um, I think a half a chapter on comedy. It's uh, it's something that is quite interesting to think about um, in in the context of uh, Chapter 15 because Section 304 actually had a reference to comedy, and so this is a concept that's been in um, U.S. recognition of foreign insolvency cases for quite some time. Um, it, it made its way into Section 304 in the 1978 Code because of a I think in a late 19th century, early 20th century decision of the Supreme Court recognizing a Canadian foreign insolvency case uh, in the Hilton case that we discuss. Um, but comedy is generally just the recognition that courts give to the judicial decisions, executive actions, and, and laws of foreign countries. And the idea is, is that out of respect uh, for these foreign countries and these sovereign nations, we're not always going to require them to have laws that match ours. And that if there are laws that don't match ours but respect our general principles of uh, fairness and due process, that we'll go ahead and recognize those, those orders and decisions. The way that's played out in Chapter 15 is there have been proceedings, in, uh, especially in the Southern District of New York, where bankruptcy plans in a foreign country have been proposed that <clears throat> contain provisions that would not be permissible under Chapter 11. And the foreign representatives have come and asked for those bankruptcy plans to be enforceable against uh, the creditors in the United States. And the courts have discussed that while in a Chapter 11 they might not be able to approve the, 
requested provision in the context of a Chapter 15, they look at whether uh, the underlying process was fair and uh, complied with the foreign law, and they recognize those judgments um, even if they're inconsistent with U.S. law. That's the general basis of comedy. As a U.S. creditor, I mean, you really need to be aware when you're dealing with a foreign company, if, if things go bad with that company, of really knowing what the courts have done uh, in the past to recognize uh, the foreign laws and uh, and what they've done to creditors here in the U.S. Is that is that right? Yeah, I think that's very well stated. If, if you're a U.S. creditor and, and you're doing business with someone who's in an insolvency proceeding in a foreign country, the days of being able to ignore that and kind of continue business as usual and your collection efforts, I think, are long behind us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the what happens in the foreign court could ultimately be brought across the border or across the pond and enforced against that creditor in the U.S. on a relatively summary basis. Um, yeah. So creditors, I think, would be well advised to understand these concepts and to... Um, address any foreign insolvency of a business party they deal with on a more uh, proactive basis. So is Chapter 15 doing what the drafters intended, what Oncentral and, and the and the U.S. Congress who adopted it hoped? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question because obviously uh, Chapter 15 is somewhat unique in, in U.S. law. You know, normally Congress uh, passes a law, they hold the hearings, they're the ones that draft the law. Um, here we had a... a uh, you know, a multilateral body of uh, organizations and government representatives working through the auspices of the United Nations to draft a model law. Those drafters obviously had thoughts and reasons for why they drafted the provisions that they did. The United Nations webpage for UNCTRAL has, um, you know, all of the minutes and meeting records from uh, all of these drafting sessions from you know 1995 to 1997, they have a legislative guide that explains what their intent was in drafting various things, um, and then and then Congress picks it up and and actually modifies versions of it. And so um, the the drafters in Congress perhaps had slightly different intent. And then of course it gets in court, and we're trying to sort out what was meant by all of this. So there are probably some people who are involved in the drafting process that uh, that don't think it's it's achieving. Um, everything perfectly. I, I talk about some of those issues in the book, and there are, you know, very active members of ABI that were in, involved in the drafting session, um, and, per, and academics and professors that write articles that we cite in the book that, you know, take issue with court decisions that they believe had interpreted the law incorrectly. Um, Unsatrial just recently, I mentioned in the book, Unsatrial just recently amended its legislative guide and provided some guidance that says um, they intended for the law to be interpreted in a way differently than the U.S. courts are interpreting it. Um, I, I talked briefly about, you know, how, how courts in the U.S. deal with the drafting body saying the law should be interpreted one way when we now have congressional history that says it should be interpreted in another way. Now, these are somewhat new areas that uh, potentially only arise in the context of Chapter 15. I think at the end of the day, though, uh, there is a lot more cooperation than there used to be. I think, as you suggested with your question, creditors are beginning to realize that they have to pay attention to these things. These issues are being brought um, and litigated 
in the courts in the United States in a way that probably wouldn't have been possible without Chapter 15. And we have, we talk about the the Mott Gox case down in the Northern District of Texas, where Bitcoin, you know, a, bit, a Bitcoin company in Japan goes insolvent, and um, there's an effort to coordinate the Japanese insolvency proceeding um, in the U.S. as it affects U.S. creditors. Um, perhaps not perfectly because of the language and time differences, but certainly better than not having Chapter 15 where U.S. creditors are trying to hire Japanese counsel to go over and protect their interests. And while creditors may not always feel that the U.S. courts give them everything they're entitled to, at least they have a forum for uh, asserting their positions and litigating these issues and and having a little bit more influence in these uh, foreign insolvency proceedings. And sometimes the U.S. creditors... Uh, you know, are doing better, like in the uh, Commando case I mentioned earlier. So I think, you know, all in all, there could be some improvements in Chapter 15, but for the most part, I I think that most people that were involved in drafting it think that it's achieved a great deal um, and that it's helped in uh, working out businesses in the global economic environment. Yeah, and I think with, you know, the globalization uh, and increased interaction, I mean, I think you're going to see a lot more of these cases, uh, um, which will be interesting to see if some of these concepts you address in the book are dealt with and how they're dealt with and how the law changes through case law um, over time. So, but I I appreciate your time today, Craig, uh, talking to us and making a very a uh, complex concept uh, sounds simple. <laughs> so, um, and I encourage everyone to purchase the Chapter 15 for Foreign Debtors book, especially if you're in, involved in representing a foreign representative or if you are uh, a U.S. creditor who is interested in learning more about Chapter 15 and, you know, what risks you might face. And the book is it's on sale at ABI Bookstore at abi.org slash bookstore. But Craig, thanks so much for spending time with us and, and putting your heart and soul in this book. It's a fabulous summary of Chapter 15. Thank you so much. Well, you're welcome. And thanks uh, thanks to you and all the staff at, uh, at ABI who helped get this published. Um, it was a pleasure to work with you. And I can't think of a better outlet for a book of this topic than the American Bankruptcy Institute. And thank you so much for joining us for this ABI podcast. For all of our podcasts, go to our website at abi.org newsroom and access the podcast. Until next time, take care. 